We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcasts person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, we have one of the greatest storytellers of our time, Robert Harris. In conversation with author and historian Jesse Childs, they discuss his new book, Act of Oblivion, which explores one of the most divisive episodes in English history, the Civil War, in which royalists and parliamentarians fought to determine whether the country should be a republic or a monarchy. Robert and Jesse also reflect on how the conflicts of the 17th century are reflected in political divisions we're witnessing today. Here's our host, Jesse Childs, with more. Robert Harris is one of Britain's finest storytellers, the author of 15 best-selling novels, including Fatherland, An Enigma, The Cicero Trilogy, and An Officer and a Spy, which won four prizes, including the very prestigious Walter Scott Prize for historical fiction. Those of you who read his books will not be surprised to learn that he uh, was a political journalist before turning to novels. He was, in fact, the political editor of The Observer at the age of 30 and used to write regularly for The Sunday Times. This evening, we're going to be talking, I have my copy too, about Act of Oblivion, Robert's latest novel, which is about the hunt for two regicides, killers of the king, who went on the run in America at the return of Charles II in 1660. Robert, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And congratulations on another instant bestseller. Also, I noted uh, in the weekend's papers, it is uh, the Times Historical Fiction Book of the Year too. I also wanted to say thank you as a historian of the 17th century, because I think it's fair to say that this is not the most popular period of British history, although clearly it's the most important. So thank you for choosing it. And my first questions are, why did you choose it? And and why this story in particular? Well, it's a pleasure. I mean, and I should return the compliment, really, and thank all the historians of the 17th century whose work I've shamelessly uh, pillaged uh, in order to write my novel. I... uh, came across a tweet uh, about the refer a couple of years ago referring to the greatest manhunt of the 17th century it just struck me as an interesting kind of idea strange concept i investigated and it referred obviously to the hunt for the uh, men who'd either signed the death warrant of uh, charles the 1st or had been his judges at his trial and the attempt to capture them all uh, dozens of them still alive 
in the summer of 1660 when Charles II came to the throne. And my initial thought was it would be quite interesting to uh, write about the man who goes after them all. And I read a lot about the subject, but there was no manhunter. There was a manhunt, but no manhunter. So I thought I'd invent that figure. It just struck me as an interesting thing to do. So that was really what led me to it. I'm very, I have always been interested in the English Civil War, always been put off writing a novel about it by its sheer complexity. Um, but here, a chase structure, a man in pursuit, uh, that was an interesting character to me, and uh, it was a way of unlocking the story. So uh, that was how I, I came to write the book. Absolutely. I think actually that's um, probably the best reason I've heard so far for people to stay on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe now it's all going to change, but uh, certainly I, you know, I don't knock Twitter. There's a, lot, there's a lot of things float across it that are quite interesting, especially if you're a novelist like me who, who, who you know, is always on the lookout for something interesting that takes me off on a, on a byway, something new, um, and, and it's great for that, actually. I completely agree, and as a historian too, people can tweet sort of manuscripts and really specialised bits of research. I totally agree with you. Back to the Act of Oblivion, which obviously is the title of your book. It was a statute passed by the restored parliament of, of Charles II in 1660. And it was essentially to heal the very deep wounds of the country, um, as you know, after almost a decade, well, over a decade of brutal civil war, and then another decade of Republican rule. There's real jeopardy here for the regicides, isn't there? Because even though former parliamentarians were pardoned, the regicides were, were, the, were the exempted category. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to, to some of them, the ones who stayed and the ones who didn't go to America? Well, the initial plan uh, hatched uh, as a deal, really, for the king to return or be, be come to the throne. Uh, was that there would, between uh, Sir Edward Hyde, later Lord Clarendon, who was Charles II's chief advisor, and General Monk, was that they would go after five of the regicides. That would make an example of five of them. But the parliament, once it got the, the restoration parliament, once it got the bit between its teeth, it went for more and more and more, and more and more names were added. And eventually anyone who fell into the category of uh, signing the death warrant or judge uh, was required to hand themselves over for the king's uh, mercy. And quite a lot of them did, nearly 30, I think. This was a grave a mistake because, uh, you know, there was to be very little mercy. Uh, the rest were then, their names were kind of put on a wanted list and they were hunted down. Uh, most of them got out of the country, those who were still alive. Uh, they fled to the continent, to Holland, Germany, Switzerland. And two in particular, the two who interested me the most, a father-in-law and a son-in-law, Colonel Edward Wally, or Whaley, and Colonel William Goff, uh, fled to New England. And that was really then when I decided to write the novel, because the idea of these two men on the run across New Puritan New England in the 17th century for years, that intrigued me a lot. And so... Uh, I concentrated on those two. The ones who were either surrendered or had been captured were put on trial, a kind of mass show trial in October 1660. And uh, if you pleaded guilty and apologized, you were essentially given life imprisonment. This wasn't a cushy option. You were, I think, virtually none, of, none in fact, I think were ever released. They they died in pretty squalid and horrible conditions. Some of them were paraded on the anniversary of the king's death to Tyburn and made to stand with a rope around their necks. And um, 13, I think, were um, hanged, drawn and quartered, or 12 of them. One was uh, just simply hanged. And another three were caught later. Assassination squads, essentially, were sent out to try and hunt down the others, and a guy called John Lyle, who had organised the trial, uh, was gunned down in Switzerland. So it was real, and they never let up, uh, even after Charles II had died, and the senior, probably, regicide, uh, Ludlow, thought of coming back to England. He crept back to England as an old man, but was quickly told that he'd better scarper again because they were going to come after him. So there was really no no escape. And that's one of the things that made it fascinating to me, the kind of pitiless pursuit. And, and it stands alone, doesn't it? Because the, um, generally, there was 
Peace and Reconciliation, the act of oblivion and forgetting, this wonder which gave me this wonderful title, it worked. And there was no recurrence of the Civil War, astonishingly, um, because a line was drawn under it, except for these guys. Yeah, that's right. Edward Hyde, I think, called it a wonderful act of, of, of forgetfulness. It was a sort of legislated amnesia, and you weren't even allowed to say um, roundheads and cavaliers anymore, you'd be fined. Um, and it did, yes, as you say, I think that maybe is one of the reasons why it's not as well known these days as it could be the Civil War generally. America, in your book, is a character in itself. I mean, sort of both physically, you evoke the landscape and the habitat so beautifully, but also um, culturally. This is a small group of, of disparate, insecure, fledgling colonies, Massachusetts Bay, Connecticut, New Haven, founded on profoundly religious principles, but also, as you say, I love this, pulsing with energy and greed. And also, uh, to quite a large extent, relied on the crown still for protections and privileges. So so how did they receive Wally and Goff? Well, they arrived in New England after a voyage of about three months on the 27th of July, 1660. They went first to see the governor of Massachusetts, uh, John Endicott, who uh, welcomed them, really. And they at this time, I don't think any... Well, first of all, the king, they brought news on the ship that the king had returned. In fact, he hadn't quite returned when they when they fled. So I think there was a general feeling that, you know, God will soon get rid of this this terrible usurper, Charles, and, and all will go back to normal. So they were kind of welcome. They were, the, they were both colonels in the new model army, and uh, uh, Wally had been, uh, was Cromwell's cousin. So these were serious. They were, these were the most senior men ever to visit America. Uh, they were treated as honored guests. They went to stay in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where extraordinarily Harvard College had already been built. It must have been about the finest building in uh, America. And uh, they lived there for a few months. They were recognized when they ventured into Boston. Uh, and uh, that was, uh, Boston had far more royalists and far, it was less of a Puritan community than Cambridge. Eventually, Cambridge, once the, uh, the um, warrant for their arrest arrived, uh, they had to get out because even Endicott couldn't dare to defy the king completely. So, in the depths of winter in February, uh, they fled to Connecticut to the Connecticut River. Almost certainly uh, they went on foot. Wally was by this time 60 years old. It can't have been an easy journey along this winding path for the best part of 100 miles. And then they went south from Connecticut. Um, the governor there did not want to uh, harbour them. He was scared. The one place where they were given a warm welcome was New Haven, which was the ultra-religious community founded on the principles of Mosaic law. Uh, and, and it was there that they again uh, started to uh, live openly. And these, these, these Puritan communities fascinated me. And the whole process, the whole procedure of trying to stay alive on the trail and then in these tiny towns where eventually they ended up hiding in barns and in cellars and attics, uh, this, this fascinated me and, and really forms... Uh, the spine of the book. It's a survival story, essentially. Yeah, it's definitely got a sort of Butch and Sundance vibe to it. Um, <laughs> I, what I love, I mean, I'm sort of sympathetic to to um, both these characters and, and you root for them in a sort of, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and Thelma and Louise kind of way. But I also love your regicide hunter too, Richard Naylor. He's, um, he's, he's a fabulous villain, um, a most useful shadow, you say. But... Um, He's not a total monster, is he? I mean, he's he's loved, he's lost. Yes, I, I mean, I came to like him a lot too. He's he's I tried to give him. He's he's a. It's, it was very interesting creating this character, which is where the book really started. I thought, well, who would have gone after these regicides? We don't know who it was. There were a couple of glimpses, shadows in in the sources. The, the, the astonishingly, the death warrant was kept by the man to whom Cromwell gave it, Colonel Hacker who kept it in his country house in Leicestershire. Uh, when he was arrested in 1660, the house, and he was beaten up, and he confessed that he had the death warrant, in the hope that it would get him off, actually, because he hadn't signed it. Uh, his wife uh, was ordered by the House of Lords, he was in the Tower, Tower of London, his wife 
uh, was told to go uh, and fetch it. And, and, the, and the actual official record says, and a man was sent with her for that purpose. And in the novel, Naylo introduces himself at the very beginning and says to her, I am that man. And so they go off and he gets the death warrant. And this is the beginning of Naylor. Uh, and I worked out that really he would, the place where he would probably have been would have been on the subcommittee. There were various subcommittees of the Privy Council, one dealing with the regicides. Uh, and I imagined him to be the clerk or the secretary to this committee. Uh, he had been a, a loyalist to the king during the uh, interregnum, and uh, this was his reward. He was offered a job, and this is the one he he took because he had a particular uh, animus, especially against Wally and Goff, and he keeps an eye out for them. So, you know, it's, it's interesting in a novel. You follow people who are active, and you become interested in them. So you are interested in, in alternate chapters, in the two men trying to get away, and in the ingenuity, I hope, of the man who's trying to hunt them down. And it enabled me to tell the story of uh, the Civil War in a neutral way, without uh, taking a particular side. I didn't want to do that. Uh, I wanted to let the story tell itself. Yes, which it, which it does very effectively. I think, um, I think yes, with Naylor, he's... he's He's very sympathetic, but he's also, he's sort of, I, I wonder who he'd be in a movie, he's sort of slightly sinister and, and, and malevolent. But he has different receptions, doesn't he, in various places. And, and sort of going back to the ultra colony in New Haven, as you mentioned, another character who um, I loved, and you must have loved writing him up, was um, the Reverend John Davenport, <laughs> who, is, who is so vivid. And he reminds me of a sort of... Um, sort of Napoleon and Animal Farm in a way, you know, they're all supposed to be equal, but some are more equal than others. And he sort of struts about this, this self-important Puritan um, and, and is very imperious and very hypocritical. And um, Robert, you give him gonorrhea. You must have enjoyed that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't give him gonorrhea in that sense. Uh, I... Uh, uh, couldn't believe it when I was doing my research and I discovered that uh, uh, he, he does indeed, he only had one child, which is was very unusual for that era. His wife only had one pregnancy uh, and actually he was being treated for uh, gonorrhea. So uh, he, he falls into the absolute classic category of the uh, tub-thumping, Bible-wielding, preacher who is has has feet of clay and uh i i one of the things about the book and one of the reasons i think one does feel sympathetic for Naylor is he can't stand the puritans he can't stand these people who won't let you uh go to the theater or celebrate christmas he detests them and which i think a lot of people did actually and one of the reasons i think why why, in a funny way, the Civil War, for all its drama and importance to the way we live now, has not penetrated popular culture in the way that, say, the Tudors have, which is odd because the cast of characters is extraordinary. I think it is because the Puritans, who really come to dominate the parliamentary side through the army, uh, are so unsympathetic, actually, and hard to take. And it's so much religion in the story, and religion's fundamentalism and Naylor can't stand that and to be perfectly honest I found it pretty difficult myself and one of the one of the most technically hard tasks in writing the novel was to make these two Puritan colonels sympathetic in some way you know they read the Bible twice a day and so on that every letter that we have that they wrote is laced with biblical quotations you know it, this is really hardcore uh, religious fundamentalism of a crime which is quite alienating to us today. Yes, I, lo I love that you don't shy away from that, and you do quote scripture, um, but you do it just in the right uh, right moment and, and at the right amount. Um, there is that sort of uncompromising sense of their own righteousness that Puritans had, and and of other people's sin. I mean, and I suppose it's it is repulsive, and it's also. Um, it feels very contemporary now with the new Puritans, um, thinking of sort of council culture, iconoclasm, I mean, Roe v. Wade even. Did all that chime when you were researching and, and writing it up? Uh, yeah, very much so. I didn't set out, really. I mean, I, don't, I thought that Hilary Mantel, the great late Hilary Mantel, put it very well, that it was, it's very important if you're a historical novelist not to just try and twist the past to 
to um, make an allegory of the present. Uh, you really don't have to do that with this period, as you say, because so much of the modern world is born around this time in America. It quickly became apparent to me that the, the Puritan Revolution, the Cromwellian Revolution, failed in England and was dispatched, uh, almost as if it never was. But in America, it took hold. I mean, it was full of Cromwellians and Puritans. It harbored these two men on the run. And in, in many ways, this is the founding DNA of America, this, this sense of being special, of being God's kingdom, the shining city on the hill with a mission for the rest of the world, uh, the importance of the Bible still and religious belief in American politics. As you say, Roe v. Wade, the, the debate on abortion, which is mercifully never really become a contentious political issue here, for example. You know, America, what other country would have prohibition this is this is very much part of the novel, and Wally and Goff, when they get to New Haven, drill the militia uh, because they're such senior army officers. And it's on record that Wally said uh, out loud, "If I had two hundred such men of these, we could we could we need have no fear of the king." It was so a century before the War of Independence. You have this Puritan colonel already wondering if they could take on the king's army. So. All that is very important, very relevant, and um, we live in the shadow of this time. And when the new king, Charles III, acceded to the throne, I think a lot of people who saw uh, the events of that weekend, do you remember when the Privy, we saw the Privy Council for the first time and the swearing in and then all the language of that and about the Church of Scotland and defending that? And uh, you really heard the language of the 17th century and you realised that this is really where our constitution is forged. Absolutely. And I think readers will be surprised to learn how not only authentic, but yes, how, how much true speech you include and and just some things, some absolute oh my god moments in the book. Um, there's a scene later on involving the angel of Hadley, and I, I don't want to include a spoiler here, but people will read that and think that must be something you made up, and and you are grounding it on on proper historical debate. So I think that's quite extraordinary, actually. Do you have Robert a favourite scene in the book? Mine would be the Angel of Hadley, I think, and all your—I love your London scenes as well with Francis Goff, um, uh, Will's wife, uh, who's still in London, being followed and being tracked. I think that's incredibly authentic. But yes, were, were there any that you, apart from skewering some of the Puritans, <laughs> that you sort of um, bingo? I was—I did have a, a lot of. Uh, there were a lot of good scenes in it. I mean, the things that we know were true. We know that they had to hide in the uh, out in the open uh, when it became too dangerous to shield them. Uh, when about four hundred English soldiers arrived and started looking for them, uh, and they had to uh, hide um, in caves and uh, try and survive. I found it quite interesting because they 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 travelled and picked up. Indian ways of of surviving in the open, they they use those and they turn into these two Puritan gentlemen, kind of uh, almost wild men. That was interesting to write. And as you say, at the end of the book, there was a, a war with the Indians, and and it is I I come I believe it is true. Um, some people doubt it, but it does seem to me to be true that Goff the younger of the two colonels, in the end had to show himself to try and protect the town where he was living. And this old man appeared to save the town and then vanished again. And uh, that became known as the Angel of Hadley. And I believe it's one of those myths that actually does contain a great deal of truth. I mean, I just enjoyed immersing myself in the whole world. The and I've realized as I was getting toward the end of the book, my God, I'm going to have to describe the plague of London and the great fire of London, because an important element of the book is, is the wife of Gough, the daughter of uh, Wally, who was left behind in London with five young children, a baby who her husband had never even met, who she had to bring up in circumstances of great poverty because the estates of the registrars were confiscated. So they're families went from being kind of very well-to-do in the inner circle of the government 
to being outcasts. And uh, so she is quite an important character. And she did actually have to, she lived in the city of London and had to survive the, the plague and the fire. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. It's extraordinary that, isn't it? It's sort of irony that these absolute horrors are happening in England to their family. And yet, in a way, for Goff, it's almost a, a moment of triumph because he believes so strongly that the, the second coming is, is nigh and these are the end days, these are the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse as foretold in the book of Revelation. I love that you um, you have two different, as you say, you know, Puritanism is, is, is a spectrum. Not everyone is the same kind of Puritan. And Wally is, is far more sort of moderate, I suppose we'd say, and beginning to doubt that 1666 is going to be the year of the beast. Well, Wally is in real, was it? A moderate. I mean, he he was from a well-to-do uh, Nottinghamshire family. Had fallen on hard times. The father had lost all the money and had indeed borrowed money off Oliver Cromwell's father, six hundred pounds fortune in those days, which he never repaid. And Wally, we know, was a moderate. Uh, he was a fancy dresser. He uh, was a failed uh, merchant and farmer. Joined up with his cousin when Cromwell raised his first regiment and commanded a troop of the cavalry and rose with Cromwell to become, in fact, in the campaign against the Scots, he was Commissar General of uh, Commissary General of Horse. So an important man. He opposed Cromwell's punitive expedition to Ireland. I was very glad when I discovered mm. that. He did not believe in the treatment, the, the way that the army treated the Catholics. So he was a more sympathetic character. His son-in-law, uh, William Goff, a very different man, about 17 years his junior, uh, he was a hellfire preacher who spoke at the Putney debates and at Saffron Walden and the Army Council. But he had visions and he believed that God had said to him this and the other, we mustn't deal with the king. And this put him, he must have been slightly at odds with his father-in-law because Wally was the custodian of the king for eight months. It was on Wally's watch that uh, Charles I escaped from Hampton Court. So Wally was a great character for me. He both knew the king probably better than any other parliamentary commander in the war, and he knew Cromwell intimately. And it seemed to me natural that in the years of hiding in America, he would write his memoirs because men like Ludlow, they did write their memoirs, and Clarendon from the other side, of course. This was an age of autobiography. Uh, and so I was able to uh, smuggle in the story of the Civil War, in particular Cromwell and Charles I through this memoir, and it enabled me to sort of pick out the parts of the Civil War that interested me. And in a way, if you ask me what scenes I most enjoyed writing, well, I think that actually the scene where Cromwell closed down Parliament and made himself Lord Protector is one of the most dramatic scenes in English political history. And it is. it, it made me think again, why on earth does Cromwell's statue stand outside the Houses of Parliament as no one treated Parliament with quite the contempt uh, that Cromwell did? It's, it's so true. All revolutionaries seem to eat their own in the end, um, go against their their ideals. And I, I sort of love that it, it suddenly 1667 comes along and, and Goff realises that, that the end days have not in fact come. And instead of going, oh, okay, I was wrong, he sort of doubles down on the good old cause and, 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 and refuses to believe the evidence before his eyes. And um, again, I feel like there might be some contemporary parallels there. The memoirs of Wally are a brilliant device. And as you say, entirely plausible. Uh, Ludlow wrote his memoirs. Uh, quite a few others. Um, and in the end, you have them not surviving because Goff can't quite bear it when he discovers them. Um, someone else who writes their memoirs is a wonderful cameo in your book, uh, Edward Hyde Clarendon, the Lord Chancellor uh, in Charles II's reign. And you have this wonderful line. I'm going to ask you an impish question after reading it out. After the initial shock of losing power, he, this is Hyde, he had occupied himself, like many another ruined politician, by writing his memoirs. 
So my question, I'm thinking of one of your um, other books in particular, Robert. Did you have another ruined politician specifically in mind? <laughs> well, I suppose nowadays a ruined politician goes into the jungle and eats camel's penises, although it's quite hard. Mind you, uh, by the look of him, uh, Clarendon would have eaten virtually anything. Yeah, no, he and his, of course his memoirs are wonderful, beautiful uh, uh, a masterpiece of, of of that prose of that period. Yes, I have. I mean, all politicians these days write self-justifying memoirs, and he was just one of the very first to do so. And this is another thing. I mean, I know, I know every historian of a period goes on and on and on about how their period is the one that really shaped the world. So, you know, let's make allowance for that. But as a non-expert in the 17th century, I was astonished by how much of our modern world arises at this time in the crucible of the civil war and that struggle in particular and and the the printing press and the ability of people to 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 write books and to explain themselves to fight through the the, the media of print uh is very very powerful and vivid and and this doesn't happen earlier and I was very pleased to write a novel that got away from the Tudors. I don't want to say anything against Henry VIII and the wives and the rest of it. But, you know, you do feel like, you know, we now know that. The English Civil War is is remarkably open territory, at least for novelists and for filmmakers, for yeah. historians such as yourself. It's been the last two years a kind of golden period for for books about um, uh, the Civil War. I can see Devil Island uh, behind you. Which won the Wolfson Prize? Oh yes! Uh, you know there are an awful lot of very very good books around now. It's true, and um, Anna Kay's *The Restless Republic* was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford, which is which is yes. wonderful as well. And I think Charles Spencer also. I think uh, *Killers of the King* and *Catch a King* are both options. So who knows? I agree with you. I, going back to the the press, it is. You're right. It's it, at the end of 1641. There is the collapse of censorship, and we have the first newspapers. And so you get this polarization that um, is so extreme and and is very, very reminiscent and resonant of, of social media today. Um, also climate change. I mean, the mid 17th century was the most intense phase of the Little Ice Age. And I see, again, going through the wilderness, your evocations of, of, of the landscape of America, you can smell the pine resin, uh, you can see the crystalline waters. And it struck me also that there's uh, sort of one thinks of the encroachment of these sort of hefty, white, hairy men who are sort of treading not so lightly on the earth as they should, that sort of colonial mindset. So again, I mean, you never force these parallels, but but they inform the book quite beautifully, I think. Anyway, one final question uh, before we, we hand it over. If anyone wants to ask questions, just to remind you, you can click on the ask a question button, um, pop your question into the drop down into the text box there, add your name if you want us to include it, and please press send. Um, also, please tweet um, using the hashtag IQ. Two. I could um, ask you so many more questions, Robert, uh, but we're running out of time. So my final question, your Desert Island disc is Elvis Costello's Every Day I Write the Book. Um, and pretty much every year you produce a book, which is absolutely remarkable considering the amount of research you do and um, the tightness of, of your writing. Uh, you write from January to June or thereabouts. Um, we're at the end of November now. So does that mean you have you have a new one in your in your head at the moment? Um, or and also if you can't reveal it now, when do you when do you do the big reveal for the next one? Well, I've kind of got two ideas really, one contemporary and, and one historical. And at the moment I'm slightly favoring the historical one. And I don't think, to be honest, I can really write it in six months. And this novel which is long, really. The longest novel I ever wrote was the novel about the Dreyfus Affair, An Officer and a Spy, but this runs it quite close. And uh, I, so I don't think I'll be bringing out a book next year. Unfortunately, I, lo I love bringing out books. Uh, so I think it'll take take me a bit longer. Yes, it was every day I write the book was came out at around the time just when I met my wife. And so uh, it became our kind of song that I was never around. I was just endlessly writing books. And I've gone on pretty well doing that. And, you know, it's great. And 
we moved after my first novel came out to this old vicarage, Gothic, Victorian Gothic vicarage. You can see the books, bookshelves behind me. I've written 14 novels in this room. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great pleasure, really. It's the delight of my life. There's nothing, no one is luckier than the person who can do for a living the thing that they would choose to do uh, with their leisure. So, you know, it's no, I mean, obviously it's hard work. I mean, I can't say, I can't say that writing this book was easy, but it's, it, it never ceased to be interesting. And it's, I just love finding new periods and inventing new characters and finding new ways of trying to bring these periods alive. Yeah. Your, your enjoyment absolutely comes through and your passion for it. Of course, your wife, uh, Jill Hornby, is a distinguished writer herself. Do you have um, sort of moments when you're coming up to the deadline, when, when, when one of you is sort of making all the coffee for the other one or sort of pick, picking up the slack? Uh, I wouldn't say that, um, but um, I think it is quite, uh, it's quite good to, to uh, live with someone else who's writing because they can sort of understand the stresses and strains of it. And also she's a very good um, judge. And so, uh, you know, if I hit a, a, a question, I mean, in this novel, for instance, it was just how much of a balance I should give to the memoir. Uh, did it slow the story up rather to go back to the Civil War? In the end, I'm sure now, absolutely sure, that the right answer was to put in the memoir and to, to, to put it in at length. In fact, maybe I should have put more in. Uh, that sort of thing is very useful to have someone who knows about writing who you can discuss it with. Um, and, yeah, it's great. I'm very proud of the fact that she's she's... Uh, made her way through now with her own books, especially, you know, recently the ones about Jane Austen. Absolutely. They're wonderful. Um, sorry to interrupt there. I've got questions coming in. Um, so the first one is from Irina. Are you yourself a roundhead or a cavalier? Well, this is a very good question. If you'd asked me when I, before I really started the book, I'd have said I was a roundhead without question. And I, and I would, uh, uh, I would have probably been a moderate parliamentarian, I think is the truth. I'm not a Puritan. I mean, my instincts, this may just be because I, I was born in the 20th century, my instincts are cavalier. I, and I detest religious fervor, and, uh, and I particularly detest religious intolerance, uh, where people try to tell other people how they should live their lives. So you know, I, I, if anything, now I finished the book thinking I was a cavalier. I think this is one of the reasons why Naylor is a more sympathetic character. And I do think that the Puritan Revolution, although I can see Carlyle's point that this was a, the greatest generation to ever walk uh, in British on British soil, these were the these were serious men who changed the world. Um, nevertheless, I think that they were working against the grain of human nature. Uh, so uh, I'm a, a cavalier, and I certainly uh, dislike the what effectively was a military coup um, when Charles was put on trial and the parliament was, they were only able to do it because they excluded so many members of parliament who would have voted against the trial. And that whole, that, that show trial of Charles I seems to me a little better than a Stalinist uh, show trial, actually. Uh, uh, here is definitely where I part co company with with the roundheads. Not that I don't think that Charles didn't get what he deserved in a way, but I dislike I dislike the methods of uh, Cromwell and the hard men of the army. Yeah, and I think that's um, ultimately why the Republic founded, because it was only ever um, based on the authority of the sword. Uh, not on the privileges of Parliament. Yes, I don't go into this in the novel because it simply would have gone on forever. But both Wally and Gough were two of the major generals who ran the country, the 10 major generals, uh, and they each had their own military district. And a lot of their correspondence survives to Thurlow, the Secretary of State, uh, who uh, was Cromwell's secretary. And you can see all the time uh, that they're not popular and they know they're not popular and the revolution isn't popular. Uh, and, and 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 people just don't like it. Uh, it's, it really is very interesting uh, to to do a deep dive into that time. Yes, very much. The, the sort of some people sort of think it was this uh, theocracy, and and the major general 
rule was was a long one. But actually, yes, as you say, it was it was so unpopular that they um, they abandoned it quite quickly. There's a second question here from Douglas, which sort of follows on. Um, which side does the book ultimately come down on? I mean, I think you've sort of answered that. Um, but uh, if you want to answer it again. <laughs> well, I think that's it. I mean, I don't think the book comes down on any particular side. I mean, I don't think it's a very attractive portrait of, of either King Charles or of uh, uh, the Duke of York or of the royalist regime. And there's no doubt that Cromwell was a great man. I mean, it was wonderful to write Cromwell in a novel, this overpowering, extraordinary military genius and really administrative genius as well. So, you know, you, 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 we needed Cromwell probably. This country it was something we had to go through and he remains a towering figure. So I don't know that it's as simple as just saying which side you come down. I think at this this gap in time, we can just say that this is what forged us. And, and it was a happy chance really for this country that we did get this balance, a form of balance between Crown and Parliament 150 years before the French cut off the head of their king, 250 years before the Russians did it. And we've seen it work this autumn, where at a time of great political turmoil in this country and some, you know, un unhappiness and misery, uh, I think the monarchy did its duty and we passed from the hugely long reign of the Queen into the reign of the King quite seamlessly, and it did give a sense of continuity at a time when this country has been rather in a headspin. I never thought I'd say that either. I mean, I thought when I was younger, I, I thought that obviously republicanism would be the way to go. But right at the end of his life, I had a conversation with Eric Hobsbawm, and I remember him telling me the great Marxist historian, and I remember him saying to me that the best countries to live in were constitutional monarchies because they offer the best guarantee of freedom, he, he thought, if you looked around the world. Very good. Third question, doesn't have a name to it. Um, the divisions in England seem to be reflected by those in America in the book. Were you trying to highlight differences between the two countries? Mm, I wasn't trying to highlight them. I was, though, fascinated, as I say, by the extent to which um, the Puritan revolution is in the DNA of modern America, uh, and that actually uh, the seeds of the American War of Independence are sown in these militias, in these Puritan towns, in this sort of um, kind of almost Bible in one hand, gun in the other, uh, independence uh, and and the strict kind of morality that you see, as well as in the obvious commercial taxation uh, um, stream as well. Yes, yeah, so the book is about Britain and America, and and it is it, it was interesting to me that I mean at the time I'm writing the my novelist said there were thirty thousand settlers in New England, and an awful lot of them, probably a majority, were religious really exiles and only if you stopped if you, the books that i read about this whole period only people with an enormous faith in god and that they were doing god's work would have been able to endure those conditions would have been able to go and really walk into the middle of nowhere and build houses and survive these long winters bitterly cold I mean, extraordinary feat that did require faith, religious faith, I think. Yes, absolutely. And again, one of the other books I saw in your bibliography at the back of your book is, is Malcolm Gaskell's The Ruin of All Witches. Um, and he, like you, evokes this sort of sense of insecurity and, and just the sheer amount of toil and, and dependence on the weather. Uh, you, can, you can see how witch hunts form and how there are sort of certain malevolent characters in, in a community and, and how they can sort of gang up on them if, if things go wrong, if the harvest fails, if babies die, and so on. Yes, superstition and, and the haunting sense of living on the edge of civilization and the utter darkness and silence, especially in the winters, it, it, it's a miracle. I mean, you would go mad. I mean, I think a lot of people did effectively go mad. Yeah. Um, next question is from Jerry. He says, was America really as anti-monarchy as you portray it? After all, it was still a young British colony. 
Well, I think the truth is that the parts in my novel that I where the regicides hide are ipso facto the the parts where they expected the best welcome, and uh, they were especially at the beginning uh, hostile to uh, the monarchy. They had very close links with the Commonwealth. Um, and with Cromwell personally, and so it was a shock to them when Wally and Gough turned up with the news that England had got a king again. And so they were shielded, but quite quickly, the canny governors of Massachusetts and of Connecticut realised that uh, the king wasn't going away and that there wasn't going to be a return to the Republic. And so they didn't protect uh, Wally and Gough. They started to cooperate with the the men on their trail, and in this case, obviously, Naylor is the man who comes over. I mentioned earlier the, the way that once he's a shadowy figure, there was a shadowy figure who brought over the warrant from Charles II and gave it to Governor Endicott in Boston. Uh, he, I think his name is Foster, he, it's given. Well, that was a rather boring name, so I didn't use that. <laughs> but someone came over from London to kind of organise this hunt and make sure that they did go after them. And they did go after them, both in Massachusetts and in Connecticut. The only place where they didn't really was in New Haven, which is the reason there is no state of New Haven today. Uh, They were not given a royal charter uh, and their land was mostly given over to uh, Connecticut. That is an extraordinary fact, isn't it? Yes, Um, it is. I mean, you know, we're talking about the birth of America here. In the novel, the characters see four men of war coming down Long Island Sound, heading to New Amsterdam as part of a, an expedition backed by the Duke of York. They seize New Amsterdam without firing a shot from the Dutch and rename it New York. Uh, that happens. That happens when Wally and Goff are hiding uh, on the coast, um, you know, only a, f- a few dozen miles from New York. Right. The next one is, the restoration was essentially a pact of toleration. Was it as intolerant? as you imply in the book? This is the penultimate question. So was uh, was the restoration as intolerant as you imply in the book? I don't think you do imply it's that intolerant. Well, no, I don't think that I do. Obviously, I give a slightly distorted picture because I'm dealing with the bloodlust and the determination to avenge the murder of, or the execution, uh, to use a less loaded phrase, of Charles I. And so this was this was the safety valve. This is where the Cavaliers could uh, vent, if you like. It was in getting these guys. So, given that my book concentrates on that, uh, maybe that gives you a distorted sense. Because the truth of the matter is, apart from a rising of fifth monarchist men in January 1661, there wasn't really the, the kind of republic melted away into nothing, uh, and. And the legislation worked, the act of oblivion worked. People forgot about the war very largely and got on uh, with their lives in a quite remarkable sense, actually. I mean, say, compared to after the aftermath of the American Civil War, where, where the kind of deep fissures still persist to some degree today, that didn't happen. So the act of oblivion was a very successful piece of truth and reconciliation uh, legislation. Uh, and and stand and stood the test of time very well. Yes, it was almost sort of um, performative justice, sort of this pantomime that that you had to um, have this ritual bloodletting with some of the regicides, the sort of token token executions, and, and with Hugh Peter, yes. that wonderful chap called Hugh Peter, Puritan preacher, who um, features in my book too. He is he is. Um, Sort of almost sort of stereotypical. You, you couldn't make him up, but his hanging, drawing, and quartering was particularly bloody and horrible. And, and, and I think it's Samuel Pepys who says that there was a great roar when he was strung up, and then and then when he eventually was hanged to death. And I think there is that sort of almost sort of cathartic sort of sense that there had to be that bloodletting. But as you say, then um, most royalists, if they paid their fine. And uh, parliamentarians, they they were allowed to keep their lands and get on with it. So yeah, I don't think, I don't think you do imply it's that intolerant. The final question is from Sally, and she says, "Are you depicting anything in 17th century America that foretold the American Revolution against Britain?" Wow. 
Well, I would say yes, quite a lot. Uh, in particular, these militia that Wally and Goff drilled in New Haven, they would have reminded uh, Wally in particular of the New Model Army. They were tradesmen, farmers, amateurs, but zealots and good fighters. And I think that when, when he sees them, he thinks these are these are exactly the men who I looked out in Huntingdon when I was with Cromwell and we were we were building their, our, the Ironsides. Uh, so I think that, yes, the, the, you know, that is, the, you, can see, you can see in that the beginnings of a country that is going to shape its own destiny. And they, in, in, I dramatised the, the uh, Regicide Subcommittee. They realised that Wally and Goff have been allowed to live at liberty for six months or so, completely really unhampered in America. And uh, so should they send a punitive expedition to deal with them? In the end, they don't do that. They want the people in America to deal with it themselves. But it must have been a momentary thought of maybe they should land soldiers there and go after them. They decide not to do it. So you can see that there is already the potential for friction uh, there. And the, um, you know, or the, or the, the, it is an embryo, uh, you can see, um, uh, the breakaway state there. Yeah, absolutely. And just the sort of sense, the land of the free, isn't it? I, I kind of, it strikes me, we were talking about how in Britain today, we don't talk about the civil war as much as we should. And and I think in America, you know, the, the civil war is their civil war, and, and quite rightly. But in 1786, John Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson, the, the future second and third presidents of the United States, were actually walking the battlefield of Worcester, um, the final battle of, of the civil wars in, in 1651. And um, they asked the locals you know, questions about this great, great battle. And, and the locals don't know anything about it. And, 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 and Adams berates them and says, you know, this is the land where liberty was fought for. Tell your children and your neighbours. I find that so striking, that, that sense of liberty, even though so yes. often with the Puritans, with people like poor old Davenport with gonorrhea, it's a very restrictive sense of liberty, but that, that seems to sort of transcend um, oh, yes. And, you know, the, these two characters of mine, regicides, we call them, they were called the judges over there. They were the judges of the king. And where they hid near New Haven is still called Judges Rock. They were heroes. Uh, Thoreau went to, to this place. It was a sort of place of pilgrimage where people had stood against, the, the men who had stood against tyranny in England had come to America and had survived. And there is an intersection in New Haven, the town to this day, of Wally Street and Goff Street. Uh, they were they were heroes. Certainly, by the time of the American Civil War, they weren't regarded as uh, villainous, uh, murderous fugitives at all. And that sense, I think, continues. They are, uh, to a degree, honoured uh, in America in, in a way that they simply aren't here. So, you know, this this is a fascinating thing about the history of two countries which sprang from this common root and one i think the the cromwellian revolution flowered and in the other place uh it was quietly uh, buried by the act of oblivion and people try to forget about it fantastic we are sadly out of time now robert thank you so much for coming on act of oblivion is a belter of a book the times calls it and i completely agree my thanks again to you robert harris to our audience and to Intelligence Square. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.